The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is 1 Kings 11, 43 through 12, 20 and 1225 through 30. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Go away for three days, and then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. (coughs) Excuse me. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out. Excuse me. And he went out from there and built Penuel, 
And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. This is the word of the Lord. I think I owe David an apology for making him read all that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, David. Uh, It's good to be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you for... Uh, even bad examples in your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we um, would see and hear what you have for us today in this word. Um, Please give me clarity of thought and speech. And um, we trust that your spirit will minister as the word is read and preached. And then as we um, take communion together and the word is seen visibly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Back in Michigan, we have a series of strange rituals that begin in the month of October. Farmers all over the state will turn their valuable crops into uh, amusements and attractions by cutting their cornfields into mazes. And then people will spend their hard-earned money to wander aimlessly in this person's farm uh, and and get lost in their corn maze. Um, What's even stranger is at night, when it's dark, people will hand over even larger sums of money for the privilege of being chased through the corn maze by the local drama department with chainsaws minus the chains. Um, Fear, even the recreational sort, is a strange thing, and it causes us to do strange things. In that split second between the wolfman emerging from the corn maze and you realizing that the wolfman is actually your substitute teacher in math class, Um, You scream, you fall on the floor, you kick, you run away. And this is similar to how we react in uh, other areas of life. Most of us, our greatest fears are not the wolfman. We fear things like medical bills large enough to wipe out our savings. We fear um, that people will not find us attractive or funny or likable enough to be noticed. Um, If you're dating someone, you have the constant fear of a breakup, one of the most painful things um, that can happen in your early years. There's a seemingly endless parade of tragedy, national security threats, wars and rumors of wars that march across our TV screens and our social media feeds. These are real dangers. But like imaginary dangers of the haunted house and the corn maze, they make us do ridiculous, foolish, and even sinful things. When fear fogs our mind and panic grips our hearts, we become desperate. And in our desperation and our scramble for safety, we hurt ourselves and others. Our sermon text this morning demonstrates this point. It's full of characters who feared the loss of control, who feared the abuse of political power, who feared death. And in their fear, they acted like fools ultimately sinning against God and neighbor. But even in this cautionary tale, there is hope. There is hope that the true king will bring liberation from endless toil, protection 
from political destruction, and even save us from death itself. Today, in our study of 1 Kings 12, we will see that because God is the true king, he has conquered all our fears. Some of your Bibles will probably title this section of scripture, Rehoboam's Folly. I think that's a weird way of saying it, but since I can't think of a better title, this first point is called Living in in Fear Leads to Folly. Rehoboam was the rightful king of Israel. At least that's how the scene is set for us. Um, He's the son of the previous king, Solomon, and he's even crowned king by all Israel at Shechem. And Shechem's an important political and historical location for Israel. His name even means enlarger of people, um, which is ironic because he'll lose about 80% of them. But Rehoboam is afraid. He fears the loss of his power, the loss of his control. And it is this fear that causes him, or tempts him, probably better put, to act foolishly, to take poor advice. Rather than follow the level-headed and gentle advice of the old men, he prefers the advice of the young men, or maybe we should call them the boys. Because the Hebrew word that the ESV translates as young men is more often translated as children or young boys. Uh, For example, in Genesis, Ishmael, when he's just a toddler, is called a young man. So by using this word, the narrator is hinting at us that maybe literally these young men are are young adults. Um, They are acting like immature children. And the worst part is that Rehoboam identifies with these boys. Notice how he talks to the old men. He says, how would you have me answer the people? But when he talks to the boys, he says, tell me how we should answer the people. So Rehoboam is little more than the leader of a group of scared children who are now deciding the fate of their kingdom. And the advice of the boys is macho. It's loud. But it really amounts to hollow threats. Because at the first sight of rebellion, Jeroboam flees I'm sorry, Rehoboam, I'm going to do this a lot. Rehoboam flees on his chariot away from danger. He has no power to back up these claims. It's easy on one level to mock Rehoboam. Clearly, he's, a, he's set up and presented to us as a fool. The advice of the old men is clearly better. But I think there's a second level of his folly that Elizabeth powerfully demonstrated. He doesn't ask the Lord help. He asks help from the old men and the young men, but he does not ask help from the Lord. There is no prayer. There is no, um, what's wrong? There's no traveling to the temple. There's no sacrifices. So far as we are told, he relies on human wisdom. He relies on his own understanding in the situation. Apparently, he has little faith in the God who has rescued Israel from from Egypt who led them out on dry land and destroyed Israel's enemies at the Red Sea. Fear often makes us irrational. That's why when you, when you, go skydiving the next time, you'll probably be strapped to a professional who will pull the cord for you. Because though it doesn't matter who the parachute is attached to, right, structurally it's still the same, um, in that moment when when the ground is getting much closer to your face uh, very quickly, there's a tendency to panic and to pull that cord too late or too early and either ruin your, your day in, in one of two ways. Um, and that's why the professional, someone calm, someone who is able to see past the panic is so important. 
And so it was with Rehoboam. Gripped by fear, he made a foolish decision. There are irrational fears. They get fun words like hydrophobia or arachnophobia. But I don't think Rehoboam's fears were irrational. The loss of political power, especially in those days, was not good news. Um, There are not a whole lot of job postings for disempowered kings. We, too, have rational fears. In our panic, we compromise morally. We twist the truth to protect our jobs. We withdraw from people in need because we see them as threatening or dangerous. We withhold hospitality and generosity because we fear there's not enough to go around. Fear clouds our judgment. And if we are not careful, it can lead us into foolish or even sinful behavior. It seems the most common way that we sin in our fear is idolatry, which is our second point. Living in fear leads to idolatry. The most common response, and even the most reasonable response in the face of danger, I think, is the grasp for control. If the the danger is physical, we might use our physical strength or athletic ability to avoid the danger. If the fear is social, we might try to manipulate or persuade people to control their behavior. If, we fear, if the fear is emotional, we may distance ourselves from people, trying to control that emotional space between us and someone who is um, maybe a threat to us. This is a human tendency, and it shows up all throughout chapter 12, but especially, I think, in Jeroboam's um, golden calves. And I know that makes him sound like a bodybuilder. I tried not to say it, but it happened. Okay. In verse 15, we read, So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. So now this is a little aside. It's like the narrator is pulling us away from the story for just a moment to say, Dear reader, do you remember in chapter 11, there was a prophecy given to Jeroboam where he told, well, the Lord spoke to him and promised him that he would receive the kingdom, that it would be torn away from Rehoboam. And so we would think that Jeroboam, Jeroboam, having received this prophecy, having seen it play out just as the Lord had told them, would have a tremendous amount of faith in the Lord. You thought wrong. When Jeroboam finally gets what he wanted, the allegiance of Israel and the people and freedom from Rehoboam's control, he finds a whole host of fears waiting for him. He fears rebellion and assassination. And rather than turning to the Lord, who had already proved himself faithful, he chooses to try to grasp for control. He's looking for something to manipulate the people so that he can maintain what he has got. Rehoboam will put the power of religion to work for his political purposes. He will use religious innovation to control Israel. That's what the golden calves are. They are a tool of political manipulation. But there's another layer to this idolatry. The golden calves in verse 28 are supposed to evoke our memories of the Exodus. To that time when the Lord rescued his people from a tyrant. And he brought them out into the wilderness to worship him at Mount Sinai. And as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law and the covenant and to make a way for the people to worship a holy God, they decided they could worship him in their own way, in their own space. In a sense, they could control God. They could say, God doesn't need to meet with us on the holy mountain. He can meet with us right here, so long as we have an image. And so they convinced, 
not so hard, Aaron to collect the gold and to make for them two golden calves. And here's how Aaron introduces the golden calves in Exodus 32. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It makes sense then that when Jeroboam would try to recreate the God of Israel in a way that he could control, that he would resort back to the golden calves. Here's how Jeroboam introduces his version. You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A word-for-word repetition of Aaron's declaration. And so we see that this new scheme of Jeroboam is merely a repetition of Israel's sin at Sinai. At its core, idolatry is always an attempt to control. An attempt to control ourselves and our own emotions, our own um, inability to control. It's an attempt to control others, to have them worship as we would have them worship and not as God would have them worship. And it's an attempt to control God, to force him to meet us as we see fit in the image that we would have him take. Fear is not the problem, so to speak. Maybe not the greatest problem. We will always experience fear in the face of danger. The problem was that Jeroboam's lack of faith in God um, to guide and protect him, that fear led, was the circumstance that tempted him to seek for control, to grasp for power, to result, resort to idolatry. Jeroboam gave into that temptation that fear offered. Growing up, I had a friend who had a, an unhealthy relationship with food. Um, he would need to control when he ate, how much he ate, what he ate, with I- impulsive um, power. And it created a lot of fra- fra- friction and fractures in his relationships. And so one day, in frustration, I asked my dad, like, what's going on? Why is, why is this the way it is? Um, and I think my dad wisely paused, and he wondered if perhaps my friend who lived in a pretty unstable environment had very little control over his life and the decisions that were being made regarding his care um, was trying to control something. If he could control what he ate that day, then he had some, some order in the chaos in an incredibly terrifying position. And I think for many of us, we grasp for the same thing, but those things are not ultimately good. The grasping for control over his food only led to greater fractures in his relationships. And I think for us, we are all tempted to grab after idols that ultimately cannot help us. There are several examples that come to mind. Um, I think we as parents are often tempted to try to protect our children from any, any harm that might ever come to them. And so we control the books they read the friends they have, the extracurriculars they participate in, all in the hope that we can keep them from ever experiencing something negative or dangerous. But they will end up moving out someday. And if we're not careful, they will become wholly unable to deal with the challenges of adulthood. Um, There are those of us who might be scared while dating. I mentioned this earlier. The fear of loss can be profound. And it's tempting to try to manipulate or control the other person in the relationship or maybe to convince them that we are who we think we are or who we hope to be so that we can keep them in our lives. If you feel fear, failure, or shame, it is tempting to control your appearance, to appear confident and competent so that no one will question whether or not you're really qualified for what you're doing. The list could go on, but I've probably already offended half the room, so I think we we can move on. The point is, we all fear something. And we are all tempted to find control of our lives 
and to cope with those fears. But only the, tr- only, the only one with true control in this life is the Lord. And only faith in him will give us comfort in the face of fear. It's our final point. The true king casts out all fear. So far, we have studied two characters, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, those mirrors of each other, even hinted at in their names, right, the rhyming names. But we have two more characters to study, the people of Israel and the third king. You see, the people of Israel function as a single character. Notice how in verse 1, all Israel crowns Rehoboam king. But in verse 3, all the assembly of Israel, led by Jeroboam, meets with Rehoboam to negotiate for better work conditions. Later in the story, all Israel will rebel against Rehoboam, kill the taskmaster, and then all Israel will crown Jeroboam their king in verse 30. So we see that all Israel may seem like a unified people, but really they're fractured, they're scared, they're double-minded in all that they do. They cling to Jeroboam, who eventually leads them to idolatry with his golden calves and his new religious order. They did not trust the Lord who brought the people out of the land of Egypt, but rather turned to Jeroboam as their savior. So the people of Israel seem lost. It seems they have only two options. It's like they have blinders on and they can only see what is in front of them. They either have Rehoboam or they have Jeroboam. There's no third option. But there is the third king. Let's read verse 15 again. The king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. While Rehoboam and Jeroboam were busy fighting and scheming and failing to control the people of Israel, there was a third king working quietly in the background. The Lord, the true king of Israel, was in control the whole time. The whole time that the people were going between these two kings, they could have been praying to the third king. When they went to Jeroboam to to liberate them from their taskmaster, they could have went to the Lord. The Lord saved their ancestors back in Egypt. Why couldn't he do it again? It seems like Israel, in their focus on their own lives and their own material reality in which they lived, that they were unable to imagine a way out of their situation that didn't involve following one king or the other. But that just wasn't the case. There was always a third option. A few years back, there was this wildly popular TV show in which zombies had destroyed the world. Um, And I never got into it because I have good taste. But (laughs) my mom got into it. And she tells me that the appeal of it was watching the struggle with the ethics. What would you do if a zombie was going to eat your kid? Um, And you can probably tell I'm a little bit cynical. I'm I'm not against the show. Um, But I think it creates hypotheticals that don't actually exist. In the same way that we put, uh, the, the people of Israel put blinders on and could only see these two options. I think these ludicrous hypotheticals imagine a world that Jesus does not imagine. In our first scripture reading, we read from Matthew. Let me see. Matthew 12. Um, And I just want to, take a moment to pause and reflect on the the world that Jesus is inviting his disciples into and how it is different from that world in which zombies are coming for you, where it is either kill or be killed, eat or be eaten. Let's see what the world that Jesus imagines. 
starting in verse 4 of Matthew 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And, are not, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hair of your head, hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. This may not seem comforting at first glance with the mention of hell, you know, uh, but I think if we explore Jesus' logic, there is great comfort here. Jesus tells his disciples that the God who can do much worse than any mere human cares for them and watches over them in such a way that not a hair can fall from their head without the will and knowledge of their father. Notice he calls them friends. The worst thing that we can experience in this life, the destruction of our body, and Christ has already promised to resurrect it and renew it when he comes again. So, fear, number one, fear of the body, destruction, cured. But what about that second part, that fear about hell? Well, Jesus became like us. He suffered as we suffer. He feared as we fear and yet was without sin. And though he deserved blessing for his obedience, he died the death of a covenant breaker. God rose him on the third day, not only to prove that he was innocent and to vindicate Christ, but also to show that his death was satisfaction, that it took the place of our own. And by faith in Jesus, we are united to him. And we share in his victory, and we share in his salvation. So now we can experience the friendship of God, both in this life and in the life to come. When we experience fear in our lives, it can often tempt us to act foolishly. In fear, we grasp for control and we make idols of our coping mechanisms. In our fear, we often fail to see how God is working in the situation. But God is always in control. The things that terrify us do not terrify God. And God, in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, has made a way to save us from the power of sin and death and even our fears. We no longer need to fear the destruction of our bodies, our homes, our reputations, our financial stability, because God has promised that nothing will separate us from his love. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Athanasius was an apologist in the early church. And for him, one of the greatest proofs of Christianity was the courage of believers you see, at first they were scared of death like everyone else. But upon becoming Christians and placing faith in Christ, they became courageous in the face of war, famine, plague, and even violent persecution. To him, this courage in the face of death was nothing short of a supernatural act. Here's how Athanasius puts it. For when, for, when, sorry, for as when a tyrant has been defeated by a real king and bound hand and foot, then all pass by laughing at him to scorn. 
mocking and reviling him, no longer fearing his fury and barbarity, because the king who has conquered him, so also death was conquered and exposed by the Savior on the cross. He has bound it hand and foot so that all who are in Christ, as they pass by, trample on the false king. And witnessing to Christ scoff at death, jesting at him, and saying what has been written against him of old, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Christians, take courage. Your true king has defeated all your enemies. He has conquered death, and he has cast out all fear. Let's pray. Father, there are many fears. There are many dangers. Uh, They are not imagined. They are not silly. And yet, Father, we know that in them, in the face of them, we are weak and we do panic. We do make bad decisions. Um, Protect us from those. But Father, more than that, give us courage that you have overcome all of this, that you are on the throne, that you are the true king, and that we do not need to turn to the right or to the left to pursue a king who is false, who promises security but cannot fulfill that promise. Father, may we have our hearts and our allegiances set on you as our true king. In Jesus' name, amen.